You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And we're back with an all-new Keep It Home edition, episode 126. That's too many. That's a lot of episodes. <laughs> I think we've hit the end of pop culture. What what haven't we covered yet? Can you literally think of one relevant topic that we haven't hit yet? Well, Brad Pitt is playing 79-year-old men on SNL, and that's funny enough. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> and I feel like our next 100 will be home editions if things keep going at this rate. But... We have an exciting episode for you today. We will be joined by return guest Michael Arsenault, author of the new book of essays, I Don't Want to Die Poor, and the author of New York Times bestselling, I Can't Date Jesus. We subjected him to a quiz about pop culture one time when he was here, and he passed with flying colors, and that's how you get invited back. (laughs) And then we will be diving into, finally, my hot take. Oh, wow. Jesus Christ. We're like a month into this experiment. Come on. Which is that I think Angel is a better show than Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Which means that I, for this hot take, watched genre programming. You can all thank me. I want to see the tweets. (laughs) It was so much work. I watched two seasons of both shows, so I have a lot of opinions now. We'll be right back with more Keep It. People need to be able to vote this November, but there's no guarantee that it will be safe to vote in person for months. That's why we need you to call your representatives in Congress to make sure that they include funding in the next coronavirus relief package to help states invest in vote by mail and early voting and make in-person polling locations safer for everyone. Lawmakers need to hear that this is important and we wanted to make it as easy as possible for you to tell them that. So go to votesaveamerica.com slash call to get connected. Our call tool will give you a script and connect you directly to your reps. All you need is two minutes and a phone. Find it on votesaveamerica.com slash call. I'm pretty sure that SNL at home's sole purpose is to engineer a Pete Davidson rap album for us, a la The Lonely Island. Oh, no. Which is horrible because at least The Lonely Island was funny. Like the songs they made were actually good. Every week, a new Pete Davidson rap. (laughs) Why are we being subjected to this? (laughs) I also think, though, that SNL at home is mostly about the slow rise of Chloe Fineman because Mm. the confines of SNL at home feed what she does so well, which is, you know, like a front-facing Instagram video. Mm-hmm. So it's like the whole show is has bent to her skill set in a way, mm-hmm. and I love this, um, I'll say, a hostile takeover. <laughs> <laughs> I will say what's up with that was fucking hysterical. Yeah, very cute. The return of that. I'm happy they're they're finding their voice now. I mean, it's only the second episode, but I, I enjoyed the episode. It wasn't I wasn't gritting my teeth through it like I was the first SNL at home. 
Well, besides SNL, what other culture have y'all been consuming the past week? Well, I'll start because I'm the angriest at my own viewing. <laughs> I, for instance, watched an hour randomly of Ken Burns' Vietnam Netflix show. I watched an hour of Brideshead Revisited. I watched some of the Michael Jordan documentary. This is all like, I didn't complete any of it. Mm-hmm. It's like a spring cleaning project where you start on every room and actually nothing got done. Mm. Like I've not retained anything about Vietnam, you know, a subject that you never get to in history class. So you always feel undereducated about it. Like I want to be like, I want to have comprehensive knowledge about it, you know? It's always a month on 1776. (laughs) And then it's like, then it's like, oh, hey, slavery happened. Anyway, let's move on to suffrage. Mm-hmm. And then it'll, <laughs> right. it'll be May, and we have a week left of school, and they're like, Vietnam happened. Yeah, Vietnam is like a day mm-hmm. in high school. Right. So Ken Burns has not finished illuminating me yet. <laughs> uh, Jane Fonda has been critical of that documentary, though, too. So anyway, I'm, ar- I'm already awash in opinions about it. But I did watch, and I'm sure you both did too, or at least peeked into it, the Sondheim 90th tribute that was the other day. Mm. Uh, uh. which was mostly a pleasure other than... It being later than me. (laughs) Yes, it was later than Ira. Downright, not quite Lauryn Hill level, but getting there. And for an event that happens somewhat frequently, I mean, you can go back to 1973 to see tributes to Stephen Sondheim. It's just something we do as a species. I love that because people who might think that like, oh, we're just celebrating him online because like he's 90 and like we're all confined at home. But I'm like... No, this faggot has been getting people to (laughs) tribute him since very early on in his career. Right, before he made even the stuff that you know about him, you know? Mm -hmm. But what was awesome is you saw all these uh, Broadway stars and some non-Broadway stars singing just at their homes, which is both awesome and harrowing because I should not know anything about Meryl Streep's home. I don't know what (laughs) shelving unit she was sitting in front of, but it's like it was too intimate. I have too many questions about her house now. Did Don Gummer construct those shelves? Why is there a seagull on the shelf? Is that a reference to Chekhov? Like, I keep wanting to interpret the layers of what I was seeing, and it probably was just her guest house. Well, Patty Lapone turned a Chinese man into a doll and is keeping him prisoner in her home. Oh, yeah. Judging <laughs> by the marionette that was hanging on her bookshelf. And by the way, the word is hanging. The thing was on strings. It looked like <laughs> grotesque art. <laughs> and we had to watch it while she performed real music. So it was very distracting. <laughs> What I found actually really beautiful about the concert was how each person presented themselves. And unfortunately, you were able to see the wealth divide in old theater stars versus new. These are people who were in Sondheim's early shows, but also were able to do like movie TV roles. Like Patti LuPone, if you recall, was like literally on a television show for five years Mm -hmm. until she asked herself to be written off. Right, yes. Mandy Patinkin has been in so many things. And, like, so there were so many people who you could tell had, like, country cottages or homes upstate in the Hamptons. And then Laura Benanti singing next to her bathtub. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, also, there there were, like, granite tiles or something. It looked like she was at a bank. Like, I I didn't even know. Um, but also, Mandy Patinkin was standing out, as you said, like in a Bob Ross painting in the middle of nowhere. No guess as to who was filming. No idea if it was safe. He was certainly not in a home. So anyway, Mandy Patinkin, I'm thinking about you and whether or not you're being safe. Uh, and of course, we'd be remiss if we did not mention the Meryl Streep, Audra McDonald, and Christine Baranski 
Ladies Who Lunch, which I thought was brilliant. I'm not a ladies purist, so the Elaine Stritch version actually is not my favorite version. It's like a cute song, and it's something that really illuminates Elaine Stritch's personality, and I think that's why it's great. But in fact, there is something kind of tough as a... I'm like always a Broadway, a musical theater noob. There's something tough about watching a program like this because so much of the joy that I think people get out of Stephen Sondheim is they love the characters and the songs Mm. are big statement moments for them. Mm. So if you haven't seen the shows, you are, I do feel like, missing a major piece of the puzzle in a way that you're not when you listen to songs from Greece or something. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Even for like a film fan, like... You're, you're, you're consuming the film, like you remember seeing it in theaters, et cetera. Like maybe you studied the film in film school or something. But for theater specifically, so many of the people who are watching this haven't just seen some of the shows, but they've played those roles in high school mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. college, right? right? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's you're connected to these Sondheim roles because they played a pivotal role in your um, development as an artist. I, I think it was Judy Kuhn who performed a song, a forgotten song from the Dick Tracy soundtrack. It's called What Can You Lose? But that was things like that when people make unexpected song choices and then they slay them. Or I'm not- Linda Lavin with that racist song that she should not have sang. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Lavin's first mistake ever, I'll say it. This is beautiful. She's like, I'm just going to do it. Okay, I'm going to talk now since you guys are done talking about women over 60. Um, (laughs) um, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know where you guys stand on animated shows. I know that I've made it very clear that I prayed to the Lord and Savior Boss Baby. Uh, That was a very early thing. But um, (laughs) that's true. You did. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. I there is a new show that I've been absolutely obsessed with that's on Netflix right now. It's called Midnight Gospel. It's from Duncan Trussell and Pendleton Ward, who is the guy who did um, Adventure Time. So it's truly unlike any animated show I've ever seen. It centers around this kid, Clancy, who interviews people for podcasts. I don't know. Does that sound familiar? And but (laughs) unlike us, Clancy like goes to he has interplanetary travel and he goes to other versions of earth and then it's a space cast sort of thing but the show has like a very loose narrative structure but it's a well-edited conversation with very interesting topics like drugs and meditation and the the animated style is like very psychedelic and fun it's beautiful like absolutely check it out if you haven't seen it yet drugs in my cartoons yes 100 (laughs) percent are we not fans are we not fans of drugs and cartoons separately and together (laughs) no that sounds fun i'm trying to think of the last cartoon i seriously mainlined i I mean big mouth i've seen most of but um no i mean the only one i've ever really stand is daria which is daria the 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 least super animated show ever Mm -hmm. you know it's like meant to be super droll and contained i don't know i i i don't identify as wacky so i have to dial into wacky that's true the uh, like surreal absurdist stuff well i was a huge simpsons fan family guy unfortunately but that's because they you know hit me at the age where i didn't have like the ability to understand it was not a well-written show i'm also <laughs> i watched two movies that i think are worth plugging here and i think lewis you'll be able to help me with the oscar wins for this one because i know there was one i watched whiplash for the first time mm. oh, oh sure my goodness, which I, I think to the listeners who were like ever trained musicians, this movie is going to bring up residual stress that you have. <laughs> it's going to bring up mm-hmm. trauma that you have tucked away. Um, everyone had a bald conductor. Still Damien Chazelle's best film. It's his, I would say, I would so say it's his only film. I don't think La La Land is canonical. <laughs> I'm going to just move and, on. <laughs> and, and, and certainly not that Man on the Moon movie. Mm-mm, never heard of it. 
Um, but yes, beautiful <laughs> film. I think my one complaint about Whiplash is how orange it is. I'm, I feel like I'm constantly complaining about color correction, but it's like <laughs> J.K. Simmons is running around looking like a stressed out Tony the Tiger. Like this movie is so <laughs> warm for no reason. And it's mostly just J.K. Simmons sweat and Miles Teller blood and a lot of drumming. So good film. But he won what he won supporting actor for that in what year? Correct. 2014. 2014? And he stopped to victory. There was no competition whatsoever. Not even Boyhood. That Boyhood was that year too, wasn't it? Right. Ethan Hawke was nominated that year. Correct. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's. I don't think I'm not critiquing J.K. Simmons. I'm critiquing the role itself. Like it's just, it is again him running around being abusive without any real context for it. I don't think, but I don't know. I think that's like a common type of supporting win, which is just a domineering or like almost fully evil character. I mean, if you think about Alice and Janney and I, Tanya, just mm-hmm. the whole point is like, you remember how cruel she was. And I think it's just literally for a supporting character, if it sticks in in the voter's head, it's likelier to get a vote. I do think J.K. Simmons is amazing. And also very sexy. Oh, He is. I mean, get me those pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? What is going on? His mustache, uh, when he smokes a cigar as J. Jenna Jameson, J.K. Simmons is a man. But in Whiplash, he's also wearing T-shirts the way like Simon Cowell wears T-shirts, except yeah. I'm not repulsed. Yeah, yeah. Know? And he's just like veins popping out and this, this right here in his shoulder. Like his sleeves stop in his armpits. Ugh. That's Yeah, I guess that's sexy. I guess. Also, <laughs> just as for Miles Teller in that film, we've repeated before, Aida, like I love him and I mm-hmm. don't think that he was recognized for that film the way he should have been. He was amazing in that movie. And also, by the way, his first movie was fucking Rabbit Hole, which is an incredible movie to debut in. Yeah. Did he not get a nomination for that movie? He has no nominations. No, he has no really nominations. Crazy. And the frustrating it's part insane. about that movie is, I mean, I didn't notice until this movie, but the scars on Miles Teller's face are from a car accident. And then in Whiplash, he has to relive a very traumatic car accident experience. Like, just for that alone. Mm. Give him an Oscar. Yeah. That's too much. And that GQ interview with him, he seems like an asshole in it, which only makes me stand him more because <laughs> he feels like a sort of classic actor who like literally has no time for this shit. Yes. There does seem to be a quality, and you're, you're talking about actors from the 50s now, male brash asshole types. That quality translates into acting somehow. I can't yeah. explain it, but there is some sort of continuum there. It's truly a bravado. Yeah. I think you, and it's something that you need to even be an actor in the first place. I like when it maintains through interviews. I think that we should also bring back diva quality and celebrity. That's my favorite thing. And that's oh, gone that. away. It's gone away. It's gone to the wayside now that everyone's humble and on social media. So we, we, we expect celebrities to be too humble, to be too fucking nice. Like anytime a celebrity even says something like, an opinion on like a piece of art they consumed, especially like a musician. It's always so and so dragged so and so, etc. They're just stating their fucking opinion. Like artists do it all the time. They're entertainers. Which, <laughs> yeah, which gets me into what I consumed this week, which was Black AF. Woo child, woo child. What is this, honey? We are confused. We are confused as a collective. Just so confused. So Black AF is Kenya Barris' new series in the Blackish multiverse. uh, Because it is (laughs) the same show as Blackish. It is. And Groundish. (laughs) And and Mixedish. But now it's on Netflix and he can swear. 
I am glad that people were tweeting about the fifth episode being um, something that you should actually dip in on because I made it through to that episode and I actually found the fifth episode enlightening. But uh, so like the show is like him. It's sort of Curb Your Enthusiasm-esque. Like he's playing himself only Rashida Jones plays his wife um, and he has his kids and it's just sort of about them being like rich black people working in the industry and you know like the troubles that come with that. Rashida by the way is fucking hysterical in it and mm-hmm. obviously because she's a great talent. We're all veterans of Angie Tribeca. We've been new. <laughs> We've been new. I'm just thinking of her and Ezra at home watching that show mm-hmm. and him being like yeah it's good babe. Anyway, um, <laughs> Kenya really can't act. and I was just um, going to ask about that. What a strange uh, uh, situation that he is acting in a TV show. I don't think of him as even a personality, really. Yeah, can't act. And it's, and it's not in the way that, like, Tina Fey, um, Jerry Seinfeld, or, like, even Issa Rae, though she is, uh, I think, getting better with each role that she does. Yeah, she's, and she's come talked through. About she's that. learning. Um, People who weren't initially on the scene as actors, but were performers, you know, like Issa did theater in college, Tina's part of Second City in Chicago, and um, Jerry was a stand-up. Kenya, for all intents and purposes, is a writer, and so I don't know anything about his background as an actor, and I don't know why I'm seeing him on TV then. Mm-hmm, right. He's just very stilted. Exactly, exactly that. I do have what might be a pessimistic view of what makes a good actor, though, which is doing it over and over again. Of course. Like, I don't know that you are necessarily, like, there are some people who have it innately, but I think almost anybody can be good at it if they keep doing it. So it's not like there's not potential for him. That said, jumping right onto a TV show, I mean, it's a, it's strange. It's strange. It me. is, mm-hmm. yes. Um, I definitely agree with you in the realm of acting you know like i don't think it's this like far reaching um thing that you you have to get from olmec in order to (laughs) um excel as an actor but i will say that um i don't get the impetus to make yourself the star of this television show when you have not acted before exactly you know and we we've seen plenty of actors who who start off sort of "Eh," and then have become great i mean most of the actors from our generation people who started out in like teen movies were sort of rusty and just pretty and so many of them have morphed into fantastic actors well do you know who i think is the perfect example of this is lena dunham Mm. i remember when that show started thinking all of these other people are like lapping her in terms of just believable screen presence and then by the end of girls i thought she was maybe the best in the cast you know i I would say about black f though which i hate even saying is it like it, he names his show after things like Charlemagne mumbles in his sleep. Like I don't understand <laughs> how Blackish. It's not just a bad show. I I don't believe it's horrible writing. Like at one point, the eighteen year old girl makes a joke about the Menendez brothers, mm-hmm. and she, and then the fourteen year old like nods her head in agreement. I'm like, what? There, are, Logan Paul and Jake Paul exist. Let those little girls joke about those brothers. Something like they understand. It's very clearly a bunch of forty year old black men trying to write a show for. Wow. There's some white people writing on the staff, too. Um, but, and that's what... Who came over for Blackness. It feels like a museum tour through blackness instead of mm-hmm. a show for black people. It feels like a show for white people. Well, so people. here's my thing about that. I, the first episode, I just I found very rickety. The jokes weren't hitting for me. Episode five, I found intriguing. Um, the plot of episode five is that Kenya goes to see a movie by an unnamed black director 
Um, and he and his daughter think it's awful, but it's getting rave reviews from white critics. And he's like, these are just white people saying like it's a great movie because they're afraid to critique black art. But then his family, when they come over, like, um, and they're from like the hood, Inglewood or whatever, uh, they all really enjoy the movie too. Um, so it's a conversation about like judging black art, but also a conversation about like, we have to critique black art in order to make it better, et cetera. There's so many things in it that sort of don't make sense to me because it's like if the implication is that it's a film that white critics are praising because they don't want to look bad, but then black people en masse really like it, except for like him who's being too critical, there's no correlation for that IRL, you know? Because like if you're thinking of a Tyler Perry-esque movie, that will have its black fans, but like critics aren't singing the praises of Tyler Perry movies. And it ignores the fact that there are many black critics who critique film and TV too. And the episode sort of pretends that they don't exist. That's another thing. And then he even has a convo with Tyler Perry in the episode. And it's about like, make your art for your audience, et cetera. Fuck what the critics say. But I'm also like, who is your audience? I'm, I'm, so, I'm sort of over the... Um, what I would call black TM content. And that is content that is very, I love my blackness and you. Black is you know, beautiful. It is, it, it is, it is very air. art that is very cognizant of the fact that it is black and wants to remind you that it's black and for black people every second of the episode or film. And it's not actually just telling a story where the characters are black. And I don't mean that in a way where like, I just want to see a story and the characters happen to be black. I'm like, no, if you tell a story and your characters are black, it will inform the story differently than if they were white. But you're writing that from experience as a black person in America. You know, it's, it's, you, you don't have to have this is black branded on it. Yeah. And it seems very marketing and craven. Mm-hmm. Every episode is literally marked, this is about slavery again. And it's he, he can't write about black fringe culture because he's not in black fringe culture. Like what you were saying about black critics existing that are critiquing him, we're here, Kenya. There are young culture critics dragging you through the filth, begging you to do better. You're just not reading that material. Like we are trying our best. And that episode that you're talking about with Issa Rae and Lena Waithe, that was in the trailer originally, which kind of what, is what, made me even agree to watch the show Mm -hmm. and they they imply they really do get to a point where they're like well black people should be critiquing each other's art because we don't need to Mm -hmm. appear unified and then by the end of the show it falls on the opposite side of the entire argument they're building the whole time because lena waith you know double crosses him in that panel so it's just i just don't i don't get the purpose of what each episode is trying to say Mm -hmm. conceptually i don't know what their point is about blackness other than like they talk about the white gaze but then still manage to put black people in the white gaze for the entire show. I know. And and the episode titles are like, it's because of slavery and it's because of slavery too. And I'm just like, (sighs) jokes like that are always for making white people uncomfortable. And if your show is designed to make white people uncomfortable, then it is performing the white gaze, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. (laughs) Um, And also every black creator who's always like, I wish we should critique black art. Never seems to want their art critique. No, truly, yeah. Stay away from my shit. And that's tea. Um, Look at Aesop here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before we wrap this up, we were talking about music last week, and I meant to bring up 
a new album, debut album, um, from Japanese artist Rina yes. Sawayama. I was going to talk she about that too. She is iconic. She's a legend. She is the moment. If you haven't listened to it, it mixes so many pop, rock, like even metal, rap genres, and it sounds like listening to the top ten on TRL. Yeah, uh, it feels very first to NERD albums where it was like you know when the Neptunes were doing that mix of like rock but also pop, and you could feel like a black kid who's like rocking out, but it was music from Pharrell, mm-hmm. so it was okay, and <laughs> you wouldn't be judged by it. Um, it's, it's just giving me shades of, like, Neptunes, um, Chad Hugo, um, Lady Gaga, um, and you should really check it out. XS is a amazing song. Yeah, while still maintaining. Like, it's like, uh, I would describe her as Japanese Britney Spears if she were grunge, you know? Like, there's so yeah. many levels to it. She's just such a beautiful artist. I feel like she's making the kind of music that Bjork would put out if she were poppier and was making music now, like, if this were her debut. Have you so. heard it, Lewis? No, I Ooh, well, I mean, you would love the it. descriptions just now, the descriptions just now, like, my, my brain vaulted <laughs> to another universe. I've, I've fallen you off listening to. to the Dua Lipa album, and this is my album of the moment. Good. That is what will make me listen to Because I'm yeah. looking for, I need a trampoline onto something else. Yeah. <laughs> All right. When we're back, we'll be joined by Michael Arsenault. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. We are back with return guest, Michael Arsenault. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ira. Hi, everybody. Thank Hello. you for having me. Especially Thank during God. the pandemic. Yeah. Our pleasure. <laughs> our pleasure. Uh, we had you here last time to talk about your debut book of essays, uh, I Can't Date Jesus. Yes. And now you have a second one, I Don't Want to Die Poor, and 
it is just as funny. Thank you. That was the um, the point. It's a lot darker, so I, I like that you still laughed. Um, yeah. It also, I really love that it just right out the gate um, also connects to me in a way that I Can't Date Jesus did because that one was, you know, about you growing up um, black and gay in the South. I was relating to that as a black gay man, but now this one jumps right into student loans and crippling debt and that is very universal and even more so now since it came out in the midst of all of this yeah i actually feel really bad that it came out in the midst of all of this um because you know um people have been i I, they mean well but um and i don't take it as a slight but they're like oh your book is so much more timely now i'm like it was timely before which is kind of why it's so awful now and I still personally have this weird thing where I'm like, I obviously need people to buy my book because it's my livelihood. But at the same time, it's not lost on me that we're all suffering right now collectively in one way or another. Some are more than others. And then I think about people that I'm specifically trying to reach, they're suffering the most. So I feel like for the people that can really like afford to get it, I'm really grateful that they've been able to respond. But a part of me, like, I've been trying to buy books for people because, like, you know, I'm not there yet where I can pay people bills. I'm trying to pay mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I felt it really on my spirit that, you know, in one way, what I can date Jesus, there's a beauty in figuring out who you are on your own terms. Um, but at the same time, you know, freedom comes, right, actual freedom comes with a choice in this society. So it's one thing to know who you are. It's another thing to actually pay for it. And so I really want to just kind of outline, like, how hard it is to really attain social mobility in this country and how we can be hard on ourselves when we don't have what we think we su- we're supposed to have. Can I ask an honest question about writing a book, which is, how do you know, Ira just talked about the anxieties that you're sort of talking about in this book. How do you know you have enough there for a book? How did you know you could turn it into, like, I just think that would be so demanding to articulate for that long. And yet, it, you know, you, you make it funny yet again. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure this doesn't sound like obnoxious because it's, it's not a compliment to oneself, but I um, I'm on I, the I, show, I, Michael. There's no way you can be more obnoxious than me. <laughs> but so. you know, Ira, you will get this. Honestly, <laughs> you know what it's like. Thankfully, you have transitioned over. Praise God, I'm trying to be like you when I grow up. But like, <laughs> you know what it's like to hustle on the internet to make a living. You know how difficult like it is. And like when you have to write that much, you'd be surprised at what you'd be able to, to produce. Having said that, you know, it's a combination of two things. It took a really long time for me to get I Can't Date Jesus uh, sold and like out into the world. So I already had another idea on my spirit. So in some ways, like it was kind of blessed that to that. And then I think the other thing is, uh, to put it succinctly, due to massive student loan debt, wage stagnation, and gross economic inequality, I work very fucking hard like a lot of millennials who do multiple jobs. So I won't say I pull the material out of my ass, but I will say um, I've already been forced to like produce when I really need to. And through trial and error, I have figured, have, have, I've learned to figure out like when to put out my best and when to just shut up. And I'm really confident in <laughs> like the two books that I got. I might shut up for a while, but I'm confident in these both. <laughs> First of all, I, I just want to say the, your style of writing, just you, I was telling Ira, it feels like we're gossiping. Like I'm sitting with you, we're about to do the second bottle of wine and we're talking. Like it's a very intimate in that way. 
Um, and also you have this great way of interweaving pop culture into your essays. So like I have to stop into the second essay and turn on Chasing Atlanta or whatever it is that you're referencing. Thank you. Isn't that amazing? That's Isn't that amazing? It was yeah. hilarious. It was hilarious. So I wanted to ask you like, and because especially the first essay right off the bat is so much about shame and about, you know, your your relationship with your mother. How do you how do you get yourself to a point where you can talk so openly about financial issues or your sexuality and something that is so deemed like deemed so shameful? Uh, thank you. And um, ironically enough, I learned that it was easier to write about my fear of sucking dick. Um, <laughs> it's easier to write about that than talking about feeling broke and feeling like trapped. I basically kind of had to learn how to talk about money and kind of just force myself to confront it. I think fundamentally. I really just want to make people laugh and make people think, but I also, and I know this is very after school special to me, but I genuinely mean it. I'm not remote. I'm not a a really big on sentiment, but I also genuinely want people who feel like they don't have a voice to be heard because I think we're all fortunate to be in these spaces, Mm -hmm. to have these platforms because by, by extension for each one of us, we could all say that they're not really designed with us in mind or at least not our full selves. So in in my case, I feel like a lot of working class people, but particularly working class black people don't really get to have their perspective heard in certain types of mediums. And I really wanted to lend voice to that. And the same I wanted to, uh, you know, rep all, you know, black gay boys, black queer boys, but also specifically the ones, folks in Houston that I don't think really have a voice. You know, I I love Beyonce. That is my Lord and gyrator, but it's not just Beyonce (laughs) and Megan, like we here too. And so in the same way with this, I just want to say, you know, like all of these dumb student loan stories about how motherfuckers like ate cat food. I'm sorry if I can't remember if I cursed or not, but people, oh wait, Ira, I'm fine. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I just remember, I listened. No, motherfuckers like will say, you know, I ate cat food or whatever. I ate only like a chicken one chicken leg for like six months and it paid off seventy thousand dollars in loans and i'm supposed to be a better person than you and that is just a facade yeah. so it's really frustrating so i just wanted to offer something real even if you know always in it's embarrassing it's hard to talk about but you know i thought it served a greater purpose because i think people really do want to feel like they see themselves i think people are accustomed to hearing about the difficulties in talking about sexual orientation for example just Mm -hmm. like that's always associated with shame but people don't associate shame with money still i feel like and i wonder why that is maybe not everybody's in the same way but nobody wants to look broke nobody wants to seem poor every like every the whole aspirational thing is to be rich and i think more often than not unfortunately a lot of people want to buy into certain conversations like even right now this idea I, i was i won't say who but like um doing something you know sometimes people want to say like oh i work so hard that's why i got all of this that's not real life. Life is not a meritocracy. Um, this country isn't fair. Um, if I were a white guy, I'd probably be on TV show three. Mm-hmm. And so that's just kind of, we need to be honest about certain things. But in terms of particularly like money, it's like, yeah, everybody wants to talk about how rich they are. Everybody wants to kind of look a certain way. Nobody wants to look broke, but we don't want to have real conversations about the fact that like, it's really hard to get ahead in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, because that would then require us to challenge a lot of things that we might not really want to be forthright about in this country. The same way, you know, a lot of people are still trying to pretend Donald Trump supporters actually have economic anxiety. My shit is about real economic anxiety. They would rather scapegoat it in terms of economic anxiety to avoid the fact that like their uncle and auntie might be or their mom might be racist and they don't want to confront that. So it'd rather chase that story. I think it's the same thing about money. I think we kind of like have a lot of American folklore and to people who disturb that are usually like, shh. Like, isn't it much easier to talk about like you not eating avocados for a year? Um, and you pay off your student loans that way than actually talking about how fucked up it is that you even have to take out all that debt to get a bachelor's degree for like thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year, mm-hmm. if you're lucky. Right. I was reading your uh, essay particularly about how you had had this sort of mini fight with your mom, you know, where she called you selfish, you know, for wanting to go to 
you know, like Howard, you know, and like take mm. on debt, you know, um, and it and it is true that in this country we talk about college, you know, is is that upward mobility, you know, for especially yeah. for like a black kid growing up working class. For me in Milwaukee, at least, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was always instilled into you in public school and stuff like you got to go to school, you got to get an education, and college is your way out of this, you yep. know. So then, how else are you supposed to then? translate that into what school you should be going to right if you're instilled college is your way out college is going to get you the best you know and you're thinking about that then you want to go to an hbcu you want to go to an ivy league school you want to go to like a tish a new school like a ucla yeah. like something that will get you accolades and in culture uh, even our teen shows that we watch, right? You know, like they're always like, got into Harvard, got into prison. Like these are the stories that we tell hey. people aspiring for these things. And yet we punish people for wanting to go to those schools if they can't afford it. You know, I think all the time about just sort of the things that our parents have to take on. I mean, reading your essay r- reminded me that, I don't even think I told my parents about this too, like how, how shitty it was of me, you know, to like, I lived in Milwaukee. I did want to stay in my hometown. Yeah. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to at least do theater. And I couldn't get into NYU for undergrad um, like I wanted to, mostly because I had a college admissions person who was like, you can't get into that school. Um, but she told this white boy he could, and so I hated her. Um, <laughs> we but, hate her. <laughs> right, we hate that bitch. Um, but I was accepted to Marquette University. You know, I went to Marquette High School. It's the sister college. Probably would have been close to a free ride, you know? But, like, I did not want to be stuck in Milwaukee. I got mailings from them. It didn't, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be stuck in Milwaukee. And the other school I applied to was Loyola Chicago. And I literally, when I got the Chicago, Loyola Chicago acceptance, I burned my Marquette University acceptance and never let my family know that I got into it. I understand. Because I'm sure that they would have told me, money-wise, you need to go to Marquette. Stories like that matter because I try to even add nuance in the book. Like it's, I am clearly critical of myself, but at the same time, when people ask me, would you go back and do it again? I always usually say respectfully, that's kind of the wrong question. Um, mm-hmm. The inconvenient truth is, had I not done all of that, because to your point, I wanted to go to NYU because like you, that culture is my access point. Those are my point of references. Then I realized like, because I knew someone before, like the year before that went, and then he dropped out because of all of that debt. Um, I was like, oh, oh, bitch, I can't do that. Well, I can't really do any of this debt. What can I do? And Howard initially almost felt like a compromise, but then just being strategic, it, it was the best option for me. But had I not done any of that, I literally probably would not be even in this space right now talking to any of you. So the question shouldn't be, would I do it again? The question should be, why should I, why should you, why should any of us even be put in that situation? Because at the same time, like, about you not wanting to go home? I mentioned in the book, I actually almost went back home to um, Houston because Howard at first was a little odd for me because I wasn't used to... Um, Black people with money. I thought I was like, oh, y'all like TV show blacks, but like a little snooty. I couldn't take it. Um, it was different for me. We love Howard now, but just a little off at first. My, just my year. I realized other classes were fun. Um, but yeah, we shouldn't have had to do that. And also, we left because for me, at least, that was staying alive. I couldn't stay in Houston. Um, mm-hmm. I, that just wouldn't have worked for me. Um, so yeah, I get it. Yeah. And I feel like I'm, I'm glad more people are talking about it because we... I feel related because I've seen some of the um, criticisms of the thing. Yeah. I don't usually mind reviews, but um, <laughs> yeah, I have a thought, but <laughs> I'll leave it alone. 
Yeah, even the part about you going back home, you know, it was like, we don't talk about those things. But, you know, it's like, I always, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I've been in L.A. for nine years. And, like, I missed, like, the period when I first moved here when I was broke, couldn't pay my bills, couldn't eat, had to go back yeah. home to Milwaukee, you know? And um, it's it's just nice hearing these stories from someone that you feel like you connect to it. And it's not one of those, as you said, some white girl being like, yeah, you know, I, you know, didn't go to the salon for a year and paid off my loans. I'm like, y'all might think like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm a TV writer. Yes, I have still like close to $100,000 worth of debt. Like they don't, you know? we, we start from behind. And when you start from behind, it literally determines if you're ever even able to catch up, let alone kind of get beyond that. Like I'm very fortunate that I'm, I, I really think I'm going to get over the hump. But the, um, another inconvenient truth that I put in the book is like our fate isn't always in our control. Needless to say, much of our fate right now rests in the hands of a racist game show host. So, you know, <laughs> got me praying again. I might be smoking weed listening to gospel music now, but like it worked me back into it. <laughs> I need faith. I just want you to know, by the way, that when you said racist game show host, I went through four in my mind before I got You're to the right. one you <laughs> <actually laughs> I, I was like, Chuck, Chuck Wallery? Uh, yeah. Love um, connection? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very fair. You talk about how you've come from freelancing and the, the sort of nerve you've built as a writer and, and, and knowing how you've uh, had to write to support yourself. In quarantine, do you find yourself wanting to write more at all? Or are, is it like, has it changed your uh, ethic for writing? Um, I have no choice but to function. So I am functioning as best as possible. So for me, like, I don't... Um, I keep trying to repeat this to people. I'm like, if you don't have it in you to work right now, and if you don't have to work and you are financially okay, it's perfectly fine to do nothing and that be fine, but just stay alive because it's a pandemic. So if you can't do anything right now, it's, it's, it's okay. I wouldn't expect you to write the next great book proposal, pilot, novel, reality show treatment, whatever you're doing. Like even a TikTok might not make it. Like, <laughs> it's just like I get it. But for me right now, like I have the um, both blessing and not want to say misfortune, but... I will say releasing a book during a pandemic is challenging. Um, a blessing, but challenging. I have to work. Uh, fortunately, I have some other stuff going on that I want to make sure that happens because I really do. I don't want to die poor, so I have to work. But then there are moments where I just don't have it in me. Like after this, I have to finish a column. But after that, I just don't really have it in me to do a lot. I actually need a break. I made myself go walk outside before this. Um, in a mask, but <laughs> if I don't have it in me, I allow myself space. I think it's really important to, for people to kind of create space because if you read I Don't Want to Die Poor, you see I've been really harmful to myself over my lack of feeling like I wasn't in control of my life because of money. So I'm really trying to be gentle with myself. I got work to do, Vanessa Williams, but I will do <laughs> that shit if it ain't going to work. I got work to do. <laughs> A bomb. Yes, I love it. <laughs> It's almost like you're saying you were out of your comfort zone. <laughs> oh, yes, we love that. <laughs> you know, my favorite, I mean, the, my favorite essays were the ones where, no surprise here for Ira and Lewis who know me, were the ones where you talk about sex and, you know, you're with porn and talking about, like, the, the, the ones that answer the question, what are you willing to do for money so that you can pay back the debt that you have, with a swipe up or talking about K Street Thought and things like that. So I wanted to know, how do you feel about that like double-edged sword that is what are we willing to do to pay off the debt that we have and also mm -hmm. we can't go home because we yeah. come from bad environments sometimes we got to go to the school that's more expensive and further away like what position does that put oftentimes young black teens in I don't really like how sometimes even other gay men can be really 
cruel to each other in many different ways. But in this context, like trying to talk about guys that do OnlyFans to make money. Mm -hmm. And I didn't mean this in a patronizing way. I'm saying literally there are so many black and Latinx men of any background, but particularly queer, they're not even really given any real opportunities to make that type of money. So my thought is if you are in control of your body and your decisions, if you are comfortable with making money that way, people really claim to like porn, sex is everywhere. We have this very facile understanding about sex. And then once again, we want, we, we, we apparently like porn, we like sex, but then we want to punish people who do sex work and do pornography. So I really kind of speak like, give folks a break. Like, stop being so judgmental because you're looking at it anyway and stop trying to steal their shit. If anything, give them like that $10 or whatever it is. Stop pirating like those ass cheeks, like support the thing. <laughs> and then also to say in the context of like my own little weirdness with porn and how like actually kind of that avenue was good for me. Um, but yeah, I think Personally, I think sex work should be legalized, should be regulated. I think we should all, you know, kind of just create more safer spaces for what people want and for things that are just not going to go away. And I really hope we can kind of remove those, like, nasty attitudes, particularly about them dudes. Like, it's a lot of dudes right now on OnlyFans. I am, you know, I need to send a tip. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do your part. I'm like, the same way I'm, like, literally giving money to food banks in, like, Houston yeah. or, like, mm-hmm. Wyoming thing. I'm like, tip tip the ass cheek. Thank you. Like, whatever. Um, or pretty dick. Whatever it is for you. Just, like, don't judge them. Let them... Live. It was um, a good piece of kismet that I was reading this book over the weekend while I started rewatching um, the original Melrose Place, and uh, just thinking about our, <laughs> think, thinking about our attitudes with this is like there was an episode where uh, basically the original conceit of Melrose before it got crazy is just like it's these twenty somethings in L.A. trying to pay their bills. Like right. so many of the episodes you watch, like. Jake doesn't have money for his rent. Like, people's cars are breaking down. It's like, I miss the fact of, like, how much it was people dealing with money woes right. um, in those early seasons. And there's also Sydney, who's, like, broke and a waitress and turns into prostitution. And the way that everyone in the episode just keeps being like, you're a whore, I'm not fucking whores, and, like, she's arrested. I'm like, our attitudes about sex work are mm. still, like, the same you know that's I was at it's very party. sad but they are <laughs> i was at a party and like with other gay men who were talking about how they would never like pay for porn or for like only fans and i'm like i pay for it they're like you do i was like it's because i pay for it that you're able to get it for free right support no the art paying for the, if no one's right yes <laughs> if no one's paying for the content it's not going to continue to get made and i'm sorry that you think like you should be able to bust a nut for free but these people are it's their livelihoods yeah and actually on another level i mean i'm i don't i i feel like writing has already been devalued so i don't want to devalue anybody else's line of work and that's another reason why i wanted to do that to like your point like i just think we yeah be kinder to each other oh god i sound i'm getting older and like after school (laughs) but shit like i am tired of people being so awful yeah they're on the front lines it is we devalue writing we devalue writing we expect so many people to write for free or cheap or to to read articles for free i mean we have a podcast you know and like it is free and sometimes people will complain about commercials and it's like people like like work you know and like to devalue don't devalue sex work, you know? It's, yeah. it's doing so much for us right now, at least me personally. Mm-hmm. Sincerely, no, right now I want Purple Hearts, I want Purple Hearts awarded across only yes. okay. <laughs> Talk about supporting live theater, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. <laughs> 
I mean, and that's shit in different areas. You know, this is some professional type shit. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what reality are you watching right now? Because your your book was a lot about reality TV. I'm very disappointed um, in this season of Vanderpump Rules because I am a oh. late person to the party. Um, I finally that was my got keep it last it. week. It's yeah. trash. I, like you, I've seen your, your tweets and stuff. I don't care. Um, I'll listen to Tim Gunn's interview because I am really into making the cut. I just finished the season over the weekend. Um, but I've actually been watching a lot of scripted and John Wick movies, which apparently um, is me fitting one of my stereotypes, which is perfectly fine with me. Um, <laughs> I didn't know John. I didn't know those John Wick movies were popular with certain genre of folk, but it's fun. I love those. Um, I was watching Bigger on BT. Sometimes I just watch Medea plays and get high. Um, <laughs> That's the level of content that it should and be. And I, 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 I love British crime sh- dramas, so usually just on Netflix, that's how I decompose. But I, mm-hmm. if you have any good reality, like, let me know. I, yeah. Spoiler alert for people. Did you like the winner of Making the Cut? Um, I wasn't mad that he won, but I... I mean, the thing is, I would say with the top three, I wouldn't have been mad at either person won, but I really liked Esther and Xander. But I think Xander kind of messed himself up with the... He he went Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen's Walmart lawn when they were probably expecting the <laughs> Olsen's Um Oh, wait. Obviously, I'm watching Real Housewives and devastated yeah. that my crab cakes are not back. I'm very disappointed in Real Housewives of Atlanta. Can I just get this out real quick? I do yeah. not like Kenya Moore. I don't care if she blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> I think she acts like a sociopathic Valerie Cherish. I find it really mean. I know Nene has a lot of issues she needs to deal with with Ayanla, but like Kenya Moore <laughs> is doing a lot for the, the screen, Tom, and I don't need it. Personally, we can just start over with Portia. You know, that's always been our divide because, you know, I've been a Kenya Moore stand from the jump. Wow. And that I, is the black that is the black gay divide on is. Twitter. You still you like You either her? like Kenya Moore or you hate her. To be fair, I think that she was being unnecessarily extra this season, and but I quit after the cookie lady. It's evil. Like, that was so but, evil. But Nene is so evil and nasty oh, now, they both, too. Oh, they can I just both think go. that everyone's so nasty on that Come show. Come on, and I and wish get Potomac this was back. <laughs> Do you like that song? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't believe Nene dropped a single after dragging other people so much for doing shit and dragging Tardy for the party. It's like Betty Wright and Nesby releasing a diss track. That's a very specific, like, <laughs> I, don't know, I just would not expect a 50-year-old woman rapping and, like, dragging folks, but okay, it's fine. But yeah, they can go. I just need Portia. But you like Kenya still, Ira? I like her. I get her. You want that back? I, get, I, I, want, I want her without a man. Um, but You I, know she's going to make up a man. I know. I used to love Kenya. Okay. Sorry, All right. I, res- I will respect your choices as you respect <laughs> mine. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you so much for letting me blab. I really love being here. I'm sorry I didn't get to do it in LA like I had originally planned, but hopefully when it's safe and y'all can spray me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes. And the book is uh, I Don't Want to Die Poor. Go and get it. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
And we're back with our hot takes segment. We made you wait a while for this one. Mm. Some people were asking about it on Twitter. So inquisitive, my darlings. Uh, But now we are back with my hot take finally. And mine is that I think that the Joss Whedon television show Angel, which was the spinoff of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is a better show than Buffy. Now, I will frame this by saying that for pure nostalgia reasons and for it being the show that made me want to be a television writer, uh, Buffy is probably just my favorite TV show. Um, I enjoy the good and bad episodes. I can turn them on anytime, watch them. Um, But I would say that Angel, with what they learned from creating a genre show that blended... um, you know, romance and like horror um, and melodrama on Buffy. I think they took to Angel and made a really great serialized genre show. It feels like I was rewatching some of it last night and it feels very Moonlight esque, even, you know, the romance, you know, between like Angel, Cordelia, and then the, the Fred, Wesley, Gunn triangle stuff. And it feels more adult and more assured of itself you know where unfortunately a show like Buffy the first season you know like you have to take a minute to get into the series and you sort of what they're trying to do a lot of Buffy has amazing highs um and it also has very low lows because it was writers figuring out what is working best on the series and do you know what i would compare it to based on what i've seen of both buffy and angel now i'm an expert now by the way trust only <laughs> me on buffy and angel is i would compare it to cheers and frasier which is to mm. say cheers when you watch it now particularly the first season it feels like a weird one act play in a way like it's not exactly the multicam you that we're familiar with mm. and there's just a little bit of awkwardness in the blend of broadness in the in the horror and the romantic elements. Whereas by the time you get to Frasier, not that it's necessarily funnier, it's just a more streamlined thing, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, um, and uh, just as many good performances. I actually think, I do think Angel is missing a charisma, charisma, a charisma <laughs> component that uh, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar gives us. But mm-hmm. I am glad now to use that word again. I understand Charisma Carpenter because that name, and she plays Cordelia on Angel and Buffy, that's a name that like people revere, and I never understood it. Mm-hmm. Like she was on Veronica Mars, uh-huh. and but in a not really memorable role, and people be like, oh, yeah. she's on this show, she's on this show. And I'm like, well, I missed where we fell in love with her because on this show, she's like ninth build. So I'm glad to know it now she's uh very charismatic like just funny enough just sultry enough like between worlds of intrigue Mm -hmm. i really think that moving her to angel was a smart move because she sort of i think her chemistry with angel makes the show it sort of replicates the the energy that he and buffy had but gives you something new obviously because in the initial season like there's no romance between them um, unlike with Buffy, and that, that was sort of overwrought by the time you got to season four of Buffy. Uh, the Cheers, Frasier thing makes a lot of perfect sense, you know, just because you have that creaky sort of first season, and seasons two, three, four, and five are amazing. And honestly, season six is my favorite season of Buffy. Um, so people are already like, fuck you and your takes, Ira. <laughs> uh, but that was the more adult season um, that I think mirrors 
so much of millennials' lives right now, and I think it took getting older for that season to really resonate with me, and I think that Angel feels a lot like season five and six of Buffy, more adult and assured. And then, like, season seven of Buffy is abysmal. So um, (laughs) there's no outright abysmal season of Angel. I know that, you know, Angel couldn't exist without Buffy, so Buffy is essential to this storyline. But as far as the Whedonverse is concerned, like, Angel had a leg up because he's just a more complicated character. Like, for the same reason, in my opinion, for the same reason that I pick Solange over Beyonce is because, for me, melancholy will always win. Like, anything noir feeling will always win. And yeah, just he's a vampire who's he's cursed with a soul. Like that's so much more complicated to me than a vampire slayer in high school, you know? So I think off top, Angel is just better. <laughs> what you said that you watched two seasons of each. Yes, and the first season what, what, of what, Angel, what? not fun, Ira. The first season of Angel, I was like, <laughs> this is not happening. And then the second episode in the second season where there is this character, Judy, who is staying at Hyperion Hotel. Sorry if I'm getting too detailed, but I love this episode. Yes. Are you now or have you ever been? Are the y- episode about the woman passing, uh, the black woman yes. passing for white. And the paranoia yes. demon who is feeding off of her anxiety of her pa- being a black woman passing for white. And she sells him out, catches him drinking blood. It is an insane episode. And immediately I was like, oh, this content, the content of Angel is better than Buffy's content but what I like about Buffy is that it gives me characters reminiscent of like clueless it gave me the fun like happy go lucky feeling which felt more satirical and couched in this like ironic sort of thing but ultimately I'm with you Angel is the better show I also think the feel of Angel I watched the episode uh waiting in the wings where uh Mm. Angel and uh, uh, I rewatched that last night because I mentioned to you to watch it. Mm. Yeah, and they're possessed by theatrical spirits. I mean, to me, I think the key of both of these shows is that they blend, and I'm sorry to use my most overused adjective of all time, but they blend the rad with the dorky. Like, and at very (laughs) and at various intervals, you don't know which one you're gonna get. Like, Mm. like the like uh, the whole possessed by theatrical spirits feels a little bit like theater camp frankly you know but like the way in which it makes it it shows their sexuality it gets into the heart of what these characters want like it does make me rethink how genre investigates human desire in new ways Mm, yeah i mean i'm really excited even that you were able to watch that because i feel like as a genre fan um and you know that's how you did too you know it's just like I've loved that show so much because I feel like it gets to human emotion in such an exciting way, um, in the way that it tricked audiences, I feel like, into loving melodrama in the way that they used to be considered things of theater, um, Jacobean era, or like um, women's pictures in the way that like Cirque films were derided. At the time. Well, and it's also just like a soap, you know? Yeah. It's like very soapy. Yeah. It's very soapy, but by adding the sci fi element, which adds a social commentary, you're able to fall into the soap of it and it tricks you into thinking it, you know, isn't one. And I think um, Joss Wheaton wrote and directed that episode of um, Angel that you watched. And I, I think that the, the ballet Giselle that is haunted. Um, I think there's like some beautiful writing and then direction in it, particularly um, the end where Wesley discovers that Fred and Gunn are actually into each other. And there's that moment where he's watching them and then you see his reflection in the mirror 
and both of him. Like, I just think that there's some artful direction that's going on in both in the series yeah. as well. I agree. Also, by the way, a part of me when I watch these shows, particularly um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the way the male characters dress, like, because this show came out when I was in middle school, a part of my brain still thinks that's what men have to look like to be cool. Like, a part of me still <laughs> thinks men have to wear vinyl jackets with sleeves that go right up to the, the thumb. Yeah. You know, like, everybody has to look like Rob Thomas, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh well, why don't we open it up to some listener opinions um, so that they can roast me, I'm sure. Hi, Keep It Crew. This is in response to Ira's hot take about Angel being better than Buffy. And I've thought about this, and I've seen every episode of both shows several times and read all the comics, blah, 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 blah. And I think I agree because I'll say that Buffy was, like, iconic for its time, especially with its lead and with the character of Willow. And it has iconic characters, great villains, solid themes for each season, so they feel distinct. But I, th- Angel had, I think, like, a better overall arc throughout the whole show. Kind of the duality of redemption recovery. Buffy is about becoming an adult, and Angel is about being one. So maybe the older we get, the more we lean towards Angel. Like, the character progression Angel is so good, especially with Wesley and Cordelia, though it's hard to forgive the show for what they did to Charisma Carpenter. And Angel's standalone episodes were so good, like that puppet one or Waiting in the Wings. And it also helps that the show's final season was its best compared to Buffy's, so, like, we had a better ending impression. Anyway, I could talk for hours about this, but, yeah, Ira, correct hot take. Wow. Taste! Taste! Wow. The people have spoken. Uh, I would point out what I was remiss to mention about Charisma Carpenter. Um, unfortunately, she got pregnant in season four of the show, and Joss Whedon Don't say it. got pissed off and wrote her out of the series. They killed her off. He put he put her he put her into a mystical coma. Well, first she was first the villain of the season possessed her, and she was evil for half the season. And then, like when the demon was expelled, she was put into a mystical. That coma. sounds like a metaphor for motherhood. I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> an evil demon possesses her, <laughs> and she is very vocal now on Twitter just about how like she was treated horribly. Yeah, well, I will say that's very unfortunate, but um, makes sense for that time period. Unfortunately, yeah. She also did not know that she was going to be on Angel the spinoff um, after season three of Buffy when they graduated. They just wrote her onto it and told her, you're doing this show. That's unfortunate. Well, Can we talk also about quickly... Oh, go ahead, Aida. Nothing. I'm just going to say that the one thing that Angel doesn't have is Allison Hannigan. And I'm a huge... It's an mm. easy opinion to have because she's so lovable and cute. She looks like Bambi as a human. But she is the cutest, one of the best actresses, I think, as far as like that bubbly side friend role. I love Willow. Willow was an intriguing character. Allison Hannigan is simply not making it up. There's like an mm-hmm. indelible quality to her that like just happens on screen. It's not contrived in any way. I'm looking at her and I know I'm getting authenticity. Which is why she's so great in American Pie, that moment yes. where she has the like, I stick a flute up my pussy <laughs> yeah. moment. And you're like, right. whoa. Oh, you did that. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's an immediate level of intrigue when you pair that purity with whatever you know crazy dialogue you give her can we talk about the career of sarah michelle geller for a second Mm. it what's interesting is when i watch her i am intrigued and 
super into the fact that she seemed both high school and like very adult. It's, you know, like a savvy in a way. I almost wish I could define her better, but it makes me sad that we haven't gotten more, you know, non the grudge type roles for her. I know that you like Scream 2 as well, you know, and I love Perfect Scream character too. for her. Perfect and, character and for her. And she is that exact what you described, you know, she's in the college um, classroom scenes. She's sassing um, Timothy Oliphant's character, um, you know, but she also has that um, sort of ingenue quality when mm. she's terrorized by Ghostface later. Um, I, too, am, like, very sad about Sierra's career. I mean, as sad as you can be for, you know, her being one of my favorite actresses on my favorite television show that uh, made me want to be a writer, you know, like, she will forever be Buffy, and it's iconic. But there's also so many actors who are that good who have had second and, like, third acts. And, you know, and I'm still waiting for her second act. Ringer was fun, but it was a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> the crazy ones, I don't know how that got on the air, RIP Robin <laughs> Williams. Um, and, of course, there's her as Daphne and Scooby-Doo, but I'm just sort of, like, I'm trying to think of, like, a good role for her to play. And, honestly... Her squaring off with like a Tika Sumter or, or something in like a Little Fires Everywhere s sort of series, I think would be great. She should be a bitch, um, but also not overtly a bitch the way that like the Cruel Intentions pilot tried to make her. You know, I'm just reminded of when she was Kendall Hart on All My Children. Um, she had a vulnerability, but also like an evil streak. And I'm like, she could play. If they had, if there was some sort of like Desperate Housewives ish thing where she had to come back with like maybe one or two other actresses from that era, she would kill that. You know what? You know what I would suggest for her, or what I would want for her. A role that comes to mind is Kirsten Dunst in Hidden Figures. When you watch that performance, it's like it's ostensibly a villain role, but there's a level of real ugliness to how she behaves that is beyond what is written on the page even because there's something about her, Kirsten Dunst in general, that is so, I, I, I don't want to just say heavy with gravitas. She's so whip smart. It's just that whip mm-hmm. smart quality. It makes you a little bit more afraid of her than you would the average person playing that role. And I, I wish Sarah Michelle Geller had more roles like that. Yeah. Um, why don't we hear one more hot take before we close this out? Hi, keep it. It's Tui from New Zealand. Uh, I am calling to say that Ira is not correct that Angel is a better overall show than Buffy. He is confused because Angel has higher production values, uh, better acting, and is slightly more consistent than Buffy. But Angel at its peak is never going to feel make you feel what Buffy at its peak makes you feel because the central metaphor at the heart of Angel is that Los Angeles is hell. And the central metaphor at the heart of Buffy is that being a teenage girl is hellish, and the things that you have to do as a teenage girl to grow up are hellish. And that is a better metaphor. It's a more universal metaphor, and it tells stories that have been told this often um, and are more interesting to me. Well, in wow. a way, she, in well. a way, she kind of recontextualizes what the uh, other caller said, which is that. Uh, Angel's a more grown-up show. But there is a mm-hmm. downside to that, you know. Mm-hmm. And also, I've lived in Los Angeles for almost 10 years now. It is hell. <laughs> and I get it. And I get it. You feel uh, like Angel is your peer. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
I, I will say that I do agree that like the, the 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 feelings that I had from Buffy while watching them, you know, like it is universal. You know, I was not a teenage girl, but she was by virtue of being a vampire slayer, an outsider at school and, you know, just always never able to really sort of live her life the way that she wanted to. And, you know, as a that's the reason why the show has so many queer fans. Right. Because you it, it's mirrored in her. If, if I can put it in boring Louis Vertel terms, I think everybody would agree that Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill is better than the album that followed it, Supposed Former Infatuation Junkie. <laughs> but when I listen to Jagged Little Pill, it feels like, it, it reminds me of the awakening you have when you're a teenager of like, I'm a person and I know who I'm mad at and I know what, what I'm learning what belongs to me or what should belong to me. Whereas the second album is more... I know my feelings well enough and I'm using my empathy to understand other people. Anyway, it's just more grown up. And so as a grown up, I'm likelier to revisit it. And also as someone who has experienced being a quote unquote tortured high school girl and then also being a tortured human, I'm going to tell you this. The latter is harder. The latter has been much more difficult for me to grapple with. So for that reason, also, I think that Angel, this handles themes that are more relevant to most people and therefore stronger. Yeah. Well, those are our hot takes. Um, if you enjoy those, maybe we'll have some more hot takes in the future. I have the distinct feeling we can generate more. Yeah, It's not like we're going anywhere, <laughs> <laughs> except we will. And then when we're back, keep it. Okay, Miss Segway. <laughs> And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. Y'all know it's Keep It. Aida, Lewis, who's going first? Do you want to go, Lewis? Oh, all right. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, uh, two Keep It's from me this week. Um, oh, two. They're both, but, but they're both mild, so I think they add up to one Keep It, ultimately, if you if you take out the adding machine. Um, uh, okay, the first thing. Uh, usually every day when I'm recording Keep It, or any other day in my life, I have a huge carafe of iced coffee with me. It's like a barrel. I drink like, you know, a hogshead of iced coffee a day. Here's the thing about iced coffee. I don't know if you understand this. It's refreshing. It's like mostly water. They don't add like lots of citrusy flavors or whatever. It's even bland. It's like a poor person's drink. I don't know how else to put it. It's like, it's of the people. Recently, this uh, one morning, I went to uh, this burrito place down the street, which is fabulous. But uh, I, I, on a whim, got cold brew from a tap there. You people who drink cold brew every day, meth addicts. Guys, I, my, <laughs> my eyeball was bouncing out of my fucking head. I looked like Mr. Martino from Daria, to bring back another reference. I was... I Daria! Truly, yes. <laughs> truly convulsing on the floor like drugstore cowboy. Just, this is, a, this is a, its own bourgeois epidemic. It is too much caffeine. You shouldn't feel like, I, I felt like, this is another reference I routinely make. John Belushi at the Marmont. Just my heart is jumping out of my chest. Paramedics have to come and arrest me. Guys, come back down to earth. Enjoy the iced coffee that is a pleasant high, a a responsible high. I'm worried for everybody. Here's the thing, though. If you buy cold brew at, like, a gas station or something in, like, a prepackaged whatever, that to me is probably fine. That's probably like iced coffee. But this on tap thing where it's, by the way, also too rich – Coffee is just about the high. Like, don't try to get, like, 
medicinal with these herbal flavors and shit. It's just not good. I I, re- I reject cold brew from taps. First of all, I love cold brew because much like the 18s, I love to be upside down and bouncing <laughs> on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think you're incorrect, Lewis. I think that you should just yeah. let us have our little drug and not speak on it. I know. <laughs> I say this as someone who was a barista in a past life. Um, I used to take the little bus in L.A. all the way to Burbank to work at the coffee shop that I worked at. And I got to really learn what coffee was. And we made cold brew every night, uh, a fresh batch. And it was, I just, I love the flavors in coffee, in cold brew. And you don't get that with just like, a diluted iced coffee. See, I feel... I drink my cold brew straight. Mm-hmm. No, I, I only drink black iced coffee. Let me be clear mm-hmm. about that. But I, there's also a quality about cold brew where I feel like it is ripping off the skin on my teeth. Whereas I, I, it, it's more of a pleasant... It's like Coca-Cola or something. That's what it feels like to me in terms of teeth feel. Whereas iced coffee, you're spared a little bit of that, I think. I think it's just Coke. <laughs> Maybe. I don't Without know. the cola. and my other uh keep it this week we already brought this show up actually at our interview with michael making the cut we had tim gunn here a few weeks ago and of course adore him he remains a singular person i have to say keep it to making the cut ultimately for three reasons one i felt they rewarded esther time and again for her certain aesthetic which is all black very tailored layered clothing a hard berlin feel clothing and then told her she couldn't win the show for the same reason, that it wasn't mm. suddenly versatile enough. So I felt they set her up for failure the whole season. Secondly, I actually like Johnny, who won. He's great, L.A. native. Um, great arms. Po- yes. His pop-up store looked like a mall store to me. I was, I was, that was weird that he made it to the final based on the pop-up store, I thought, even though his, his uh, garment net challenge sold really well. And finally... I think that my main problem with the show is every decision made to differentiate it from Project Runway feels like a decision made to differentiate it from Project Runway. The mm. judging is ultimately too confused. I felt like Nicole Richie jumping out and into the show was inappropriate. I didn't like the drama with Heidi having to ask the other judges, have we changed our minds about this person? That's like anticlimactic to me. So I felt they really fucked up the most dramatic part of the show, even if Naomi was really good. Yeah, I would say that um, the finale really drove home that the winner was partnered with <laughs> Amazon Fashion, whatever right, that right. is, um, <laughs> because it, you like when Esther w- like went to sit with this woman from Amazon Fashion, this blonde woman in this like bright pink print, you knew it was a wrap. I was like, <laughs> I was like, this girl is not trying to get anything from you, Esther. Um, I I did not like. Johnny's pop up with the voguing, I like. What are you doing? It was so try hard to me, and um, I you know I ordered one of his shirts, but I also the one that just said Johnny Coda on it. Um, the rest of them, I was like, I don't need a fucking butterfly on my shirt. I mean, like it looks like I was shopping at Kitson, (laughs) you know. Also, by uh, the way, I didn't I didn't realize quite how inexpensive some of the clothing mm-hmm. items went like that that shirt you're talking about is like 12.99 or something yeah amazon fashion you know right. and i mean also sign up when they cut to his sewing shop in bali <laughs> i did <laughs> i did maybe flinch i did flinch i was, I was like how much are those people being paid yeah. <laughs> um i yeah just thought that they really drove home the commercialization of the fashion and um 
it just became more clear that the person who was more accessible and giving you something that you had seen before was going to win other than someone being innovative in fashion. You know, like that's the difference between that next in fashion, right? Next in fashion was about someone creating something new to like really enliven the fashion world. And this was about what can sell easiest. And they kept talking about how so many of Johnny's clothes they had seen before. And true, I mean, like, if you don't want to get it at Rag and Bone, now you can get it at Johnny Coda. Yeah. You know? It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I know that the whole the point of the show is to create a, a global fashion brand. So it'll be interesting to see if Johnny can turn this over into something that, like, Joseph Optizara did. But then again, I'm not interested in his clothes. They all look like Chris Angel cutouts. Like, I'm not, I'm not for it. <laughs> okay. okay, but girl, as cute as Joseph Altazara is... Um, he just did this collaboration with Etsy for like a home product. Stop right and there. I looked and I was and I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> okay. It it looks like it looked like Pier 19 imports. <laughs> but by the way, if they had just if they had been even more explicit about this being about the Amazon customer, I could have gotten into that, but it was like it had illusions about innovation in a way that does not feel appropriate for what they're trying to sell i think i think that the judges were really just sort of at odds and it was it was more yeah. obvious that um naomi was looking for innovation and creativity from a um designer and and like the show was not looking for that mm-hmm. correct by the way they also the amount of heidi and tim i'll call them skits that were sprinkled throughout guys like I think what was painful for me is not just that they were trying to be funny, but like Tim Gunn is not like a performer in that way. It felt like to me, they almost misunderstood why we like him. Like just, just let him be himself. Let him be like a weird gay finicky academic. Like that's all we want. Mm -hmm. We don't need to see them doing this like quasi SNL thing with Heidi pretending to be like a lunatic. I didn't understand where she was coming from. The packing one. Yeah. The one where they were packing and like her, her place is askew. I was like, Okay, what is this Oscar and Felix? <laughs> yeah, right. Are they gonna sell a? Is is like there a sitcom coming after this? Heidi and Tim. Uh, right, That's, they were certainly pretending that there was some pre-existing d- dynamic between the two of them that we've all loved for years. It's like, no, he's an academic; she's a supermodel. That's it. Yeah, that relationship did not exist that way on Project Runway, and the the attempt to whackify it was contrived. It yeah. was contrived. Yeah. I, I guess she is a very good Penelope pit stop, though. If they want to reboot Wacky Races. <laughs> Good reference always. Uh, Aida? Yes. Okay. Well, I wasn't here. I wasn't on Keep It to complain about this when the trailer came out nine months ago. So this baby, this evil hate baby has been growing in me for nine months. And now I finally have the platform to release this. But I rewatched the trailer for Snowpiercer because it's about to come out. And it should be coming out later in May, I believe. But... Wow, it's funny because we talked about Buffy so much today, but I do not think that movies should be turned into television shows unless they're going to be amazing and you know that. Unless you're Joss Whedon, please don't turn your movie into a television show. I just think that like movies are deliberately made with such a like insular one theme that they're trying to convey. When they make it into a TV show, I'm going to see the same thing. I'm going to watch Snowpiercer again. If, I'm go- if I wanted to watch Snowpiercer again, I would watch The Platform. Like I don't need to see the entire same storyline happen... You're going to repeat the same stuff. And it's like TNT makes a bunch of crime shows, whatever. They're very good at 
crimes against humanity television now <laughs> so i i won't be tuning in i think if i do tune in it will be to see to v Diggs because he's very attractive and that's the only redemptive part about that show but they remake it with yeah. here are the same characters but now it's a woman leading the train and uh we threw in two light-skinned black people so there you go negroes come come through so you know, it's just, it's very disappointing. Like, I would really appreciate TNT if they're going to do original programming to make something good. But my bar is very low, and I'm, I'm just not happy about this. I know, Bong Hive, we're not going to eat. We're not going to eat. Also, uh, I, just, I, want, I want you to be the TV gatekeeper who actually says, come through light skin. <laughs> Waving that man. That's what they do every time. They add one curl pattern. They think it's a new show. It's not. Do you know what's yeah. weird is we have there are so many shows based on movies that like no one talks about anymore. Like remember when we got seasons and seasons of Animal Kingdom with Ellen yes. Barkin and that was in, TNT in yeah. too. Yeah, right. They need the show. Uh, and now we're about to get, we're about to get the Love Simon show. I wonder if that'll be good. TNT stands for TV. Now it's TV <laughs> <laughs> about your favorite movies. <laughs> uh, the Buffy thing oh was a prime God. example, though, you know, because that original just sort of wacky, weird movie with yes. Christy Swanson in it, who is now a Trump acolyte, um, was just sort of like this weird movie about, hey, what if a teenage girl was like slaying vampires? And then the mm-hmm. show was like, this is about high school as hell and taking you on a journey, right? I feel like unless something about the kernel of the movie can be expanded into something that you want to continue watching, like... Why? And, 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 and the reverse, you, you need to think about the reverse, too. You know, it's like, would a show like Sopranos we be as amazing if it was just a film? Mm-hmm. No, because you need that character depth and exploration in the series, right? We'll see. Think, this reminds you know, me. Recently, I was thinking about, we have so many shows that are, uh, we have so many TV shows now. I was wondering what ones of them could be movies. I think, ultimately, Russian Doll could have been a movie. Oh, you're saying in lieu of yeah. a television show or in addition to? Right, right. Like, like I like thinking the other way, too. Like, Because I like abbreviating things as much as possible. If your movie can be a tweet, let's do it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just give me the log line. Just shoot log lines into my brain through diffusion. <laughs> I don't want to watch this shit anymore. And also, here's my other little petty complaint about the trailer. The CGI footage of the train for the show is the same footage from the movie. Y'all can't fool me. They didn't even try. <laughs> they didn't even try to like show their budget. Flex something. Like it's just it's it's frankly inappropriate and I'm disgusted. So <laughs> that that does remind me of a thing that I've actually thought about with remakes of movies. Um I think that what's so great about a movie obviously as a writer is the script, you know, and the way that we see revivals of plays. I would love not something awful like Gus Van Sant's Psycho, um, which hurt my soul and probably my credit score by watching it. <laughs> but um, I think that more films that maybe were classics or um, something could have been a little bit better with them or maybe they're still timely, remake the movie but with the same script. Maybe like a few tweaks, but like, wouldn't it be great to see, like, you know, just seeing if a film, if that script that was so great and, like, if it won an Academy Award or something, like, in the 60s or 50s, seeing if that could translate into a 2021 film. Yes, with you know? new characters, maybe, like, depending on who you cast, what overtones it could have because of, you know, yeah. the new commentary you're trying to make. I, I think that's, do it, Ira. Do it. Let's yeah. do it. 12 Angry Men, today. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, right? Um... 
My keep it is a quick one. It's about Buffy again. Oh. Uh, it is to the phenomenon of someone tweeting something that they didn't know before and pretending like it is brand new information. Uh, and then it's sort of going viral when this is something we've talked about before. You know, I feel like every month someone is rediscovering the same thing on Twitter, the same way that people relitigate who the villain is in Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> I had a really good tweet about good. that, though. I have to say, I really nailed it recently. I said, the villain and the Devil Wears Prada is everyone who wasn't ready. Sorry, that's the context. <laughs> uh, but someone recently discovered that Dolly Parton um, was a producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And, but also, she kind of did it like from afar. I mean, it's just not that yes. mind-blowing a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that um, her production company that she co-created um, so that it could produce other things, Sand Dollar Entertainment, produced Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, it gave money to produce the show. It also produced Father of the Bride um, and Fly Away Home. But it's like, one, it's not like Dolly had day-to-day involvement in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I doubt she's ever seen it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if we keep it at 100. Um, Just give us some money for the next little show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure she was like, okay, cool. I got some coins yeah, from this. Thank shame. you. But um, this, is, this is also common knowledge to fans uh, of the show, I feel like. And maybe my personal keep it is just to... Um, the amount of people who kept sending it to me—that's like, that's probably I the annoying would, thing. Like I like I like I wouldn't know this information because I yeah that's that would have made me irritated. But this is the crux of Twitter is that we have to share. And I know the irony is not lost on me what I'm about to say, but we have to share Twitter with a bunch of younger people, and we have to uh, watch them have the same revelations that we had years ago. The the most annoying part of this to me is seeing someone like on. BuzzFeed or Vox or something like that and they write a whole article about this. Like they'll write a whole article about how Dolly Parton is an uncredited producer. Yeah. It's like, bitch, we've been Well, new. that's the thing. That's <laughs> the thing. I, I, I don't fault people for discovering yeah. it. I fault um, websites for then turning that into news because it's not news. Like people are, people are shocked by the J- remember that J-Lo one where it was like they thought that um, she was saying are you Ellie right mm-hmm. instead of are you L-E in I'm real w- with Ja Rule and it's like who the fuck thought she was saying are you Ellie <laughs> right, come on right. who is Ellie uh, another one <laughs> Uh, another one that comes up all the time is that "Torn" by Natalie Imbruglia is a cover. Just things like that, you know. It's yeah. like, by the way, we we all have access to the same Wikipedia people. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's our show. Thank you to Michael Arsenal for being here again. Yeah. And uh, he's fun. Ooh, I like him. Yeah, he's great. I'm gonna read all his stuff. Yeah, he's wonderful. <laughs> I love uh, him. His love and hip hop recaps are Chef's Kit. <laughs> yes. All right. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.